But I want to talk about, uh, I want to share some scripture with you. It's from the book of Ephesians. And uh, Ephesians written by a guy named Paul, who was uh, in the very early New Testament, one of the people who wrote uh, most of the New Testament. And he did these missionary journeys, is what we call them. He traveled around uh, what is like Asia Minor, like the south end of Europe today, and and uh, planted churches, told people about Jesus. And he started a church in a town called Ephesus. And then he left and came back and spent like an extended period of time, uh, probably two years, in this church in Ephesus getting it going, which is kind of uh, remarkable because Ephesus was a central city. Uh, probably 100,000 people lived there, which is a big deal at that time. And they had a temple there to the god named Artemis. And uh, Paul came in and started telling people about Jesus. And the temple for Artemis was actually like not just the god that they worshipped, it was the center of their cultural and financial lives. Like the, Artem- the temple to Artemis was the largest building, uh, I guess that's arguable, but they would say the largest building um, in the entire Roman Empire at that time. And it was uh, not just like a temple where you could worship the god Artemis, but it was also a very early bank, uh, so it was, it was central to their financial system, and there was like arts there, like uh, paintings and sculptures and those kinds of things. Uh, The people who made the gods of Artemis, uh, actually when Paul came to town, so many people started becoming Christians and not worshiping their gods and not buying their trinkets and their small silver statues uh, that they actually started a riot because the Christianity affected the city economically. It It wasn't about, oh, we disagree with that god. It's we disagree with what that God is doing to our economic system. And so they actually uh, started a riot and chanted for two hours. This mob of human beings chanted, uh, uh, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours, this mob just kind of came through town uh, doing kind of an Occupy Ephesus kind of thing for the God Artemis uh, because the God uh, Jesus uh, was messing things up for them. And so Paul, as, as he was would do is, is people call people to Christianity, and the Christianity affected the world in such a way that Paul ends up arrested, and he writes the letter Ephesians and a couple other letters from a prison in Rome. And so he writes this letter to this church uh, that is started in this town that is this kind of culturally central to what's going on, and I want to read a bit at the beginning and a bit at the end of the book of Ephesus uh, and just kind of share a few things, because I think it's... Um, uh, instructive for us at this point in, our t- in this time at this church and in, in our lives individually. So we're going to put it on the screen. I'm using a, if you have the U version app, you can click on the little uh, sandwich down on the bottom, the hamburger button, and they hit events. And there's a few churches in our town that have events there, and, and you can click on the Grove. That'll be up all week, so you can refer back to it. But I'm using the, the message translation. It'll be on the screen. Uh, if you don't have a Bible app, version is the one we use here, and if you want to uh, get connected to that. The message version is like a paraphrase that a pastor wrote, uh, so it's a little more uh, accessible, but not like scientifically always correct, if that's all right. So we won't do like original word parsing stuff, so if you are into that, oh, your disappointment. So... <laughs> This is what the, how the letter uh, kind of kicks off. How blessed is God, which is kind of true. We don't think about that a lot, but he's kind of blessed. And what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid the earth's foundation, 
He had us in mind, and he settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved son. It's this kickoff to the letter that says, before God started everything, he knew what he was going to do, and he knew about you, and he knew what he was going to do in your life, and he had that same feeling that you have if you have little kids, that feeling you have on Christmas Eve, and you have a hard time sleeping because of the excitement you're going to see on their faces, because you are going to lavishly give them gifts. And you can see God, like if you have ever read the creation narrative in Genesis, it's like day one, two, three. I can imagine God on day one Eve having a hard time sleeping because he's so excited. But theologically, God never sleeps, so he has a hard time sleeping every night. (laughs) So my little metaphor falls apart there. But God is so excited and so pleased to do what he's doing in your life. And then he's so pleased to do what he's doing in a church. Not just this church, in the church, the church of our city, the church of our state, the church of the world. God is excited about the things that happen and excited, it pleases him to choose you. Like at some point, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to acknowledge that God chose you. And God actually chose you, in a way, over his own son, which is why Jesus died on the cross for you. The gift that was ushered into us, or brought, sorry, of the lavish gift that was given to us by the hand of his beloved son. At some point, we recognize that, and our gratitude grows because the cost of this gift Uh, This cost of this gift is overwhelming to us, which causes us to enter into the celebration. There should be like a, I think that should be a sign on more church doors, enter into the celebration. It often feels when you walk into a church like you're entering into the mortuary. (laughs) That's offensive probably, but you had to know that was coming. (laughs) We feel like we're entering into the place where you should not be happy, the place where you should be afraid, the place where you should uh, be quiet and, and not make any mistakes or not express yourself. And in Ephesians, Jesus died and paid the penalty for your sin so that you can enter into the celebration, so you can enter into the thing that is joyous, the thing that we're excited uh, to be together for. That's why, uh, like, Cake Break Sunday isn't rude to God. (laughs) It isn't sacrilegious for us to smile together and tell great stories of God's work together. It is actually God would enjoy that even more, because how blessed is God, and what a blessing he is, and when we celebrate, we live into that. And so, the scripture continues, and I'll uh, continue here. Um, says, that's why when I heard of the solid trust you have, and this is Paul writing, the early church leader who started this church, writing to the church. That's why when I heard of this solid trust you have in the Master Jesus 
and your outpouring of love on the followers of to all sorry to all the followers of Jesus I couldn't stop thanking God for you every time I prayed I'd think of you and give thanks but I do more than thank I'd ask I'd ask the God of our master Jesus Christ the God of glory to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing him personally your eyes focused and clear so that you can see exactly what he is calling you to do to grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life he has for his followers. Oh, the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him. Endless energy, boundless strength. And so Paul says, when I think of you, church, I'm thankful. And I think, like, uh, let me say this. You want to be the kind of church that when your pastor thinks of you, he's thankful. And that's not always true. You want to be the kind of church member that when your pastor thinks of you, he's thankful. You, I mean, uh, it's not that you don't, it's not like uh, silent obedience. It's not like uh, mandatory, like following the rules that Pastor James says. Because it, it's not, I hope you understand that if you've been here more than a week, we appreciate diversity and we're not going for uniformity, we're going for unity. But there are times when people um, are more difficult for a pastor to be thankful for. <laughs> there are times in my parents' life when I was more difficult to pray prayers of thanksgiving about. They had lots of requests, lots of smiting, but more difficult to be thankful for. And it's not that like you're supposed to be a perfect person or a perfect church member. But, but Paul calls us to be a part of something where when he's praying for his church, he can't help but pray prayers of thanksgiving. He can't help but be glad to be a part of this thing that God is doing. And then he prays and, and makes some requests. And I want to talk about those because I think those are important. The leaders of the church pray this for their people. And it's um, a prayer, if, if as we go through it, this will be what I would be praying for you individually and then the way that works out together. The first is for you to be intelligent and discerning, to know and to be wise in knowing Jesus for yourself. A, a pastor or a leader in a church actually prays that his church people would know Jesus. And not know Jesus in a way where you come and a guy tells you about Jesus, but you would be intelligent and discerning in your own personal relationship with Jesus so that you can, in, in effect, pour that love out on, onto other people. So to be intelligent and discerning, to know Jesus and to be wise in Jesus for yourself. Then to be focused and clear in your calling. To really be able to drill down on this is how God made me and this is my role in this church and to fulfill that role. To understand that God didn't, like just add anyone to the church as spectators. The church is described as a body, and there's no parts of the body that aren't important. You can know that if you've got a part of your body that gets injured or starts hurting. The other parts of your body have to make up for that. I, know th I think we have like the, the dangly thing at the back of your neck. I don't know what that's for, but I'm positive it's important. And you might be that ch church member where we're not sure... <laughs> I'm just kidding around. <laughs> but, 
But you are, <clears throat> sorry, <laughs> we're going to take a break and just live in that. I am positive that God gifts every person in the church to contribute to what he has in mind for that church, to play a part. And your part might be some, you know, really admired part where people look at that person and say, oh, that person. Or your part might be something behind the scenes that people don't notice for years and years and years and years. But your part is important. And there's actually, the scripture says, more honor for the hidden roles, for the things that you don't know about. There are people that gather and pray for this church. We don't put them on the screen. We don't celebrate that group. But they do. There are people that get here very, very early in the morning. And we don't bring them up on stage and clap every week or something like that, but, it, but they do. And their role is very, very important. Be focused and clear in your calling. The third one is to have a grip or to grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life. To have a grip on how large this way of life is that is following Jesus. To have a grip on how free you are in Jesus. Freedom I think, is a thing that is usually pointed at as offensive by the people who wish they were free. If you see people, well, before when the worship was going and there were grown adult humans dancing and then there were grown adult humans not dancing, then there was a third category wishing that no one was dancing. <laughs> And then there's a fourth category, wishing that no one was dancing because secretly they wish they could be dancing and that makes them feel bad about themselves because <laughs> they actually want to dance. And I think that fourth category is where most of us live. And dancing is kind of a silly example, you know, because it's the most embarrassing one. Uh, but there are things in your life that you wish you could live into in the freedom of Christ. And sometimes it's terrifying because what if people notice? There are times when you'll be talking to someone and you feel this urge to pray for them. And you feel this urge to say, I'd like to pray for you right now. And you're terrified because you're worried that when you close your eyes, they're going to look at you like you're a weirdo because nobody does this. But you have this conviction and then you wrestle with that. Or you have this conviction to tell someone about the reason that you have hope for your life, which is Jesus. But you're worried that if you tell them, that's going to kind of make the relationship awkward for the rest of your life, and you have to work in the next cubicle for at least the next 25 years. <laughs> and that creates a tension. And my prayer for you, and Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, is that you'd live into the freedom of following the convictions that God puts on your heart. The last one, number four, is that you would know the extravagance of his work, the endless energy and the boundless strength of the people who follow Jesus. I was with a bunch of pastors on Friday, and uh, I, I'm, I'm on these committee things and, and these boards, and Thursday night and Friday I spent time in, in a room with pastors, and we went to go for lunch, and I told them, you know, I had to leave at a certain time because we're throwing a party for our church this weekend. And they're like, man, 10 years, that's awesome. And, and the pastors say, aren't you tired of setting up? Like, aren't you tired of that? 
And I'm like, well, probably like Sunday afternoon I am. Uh, but it is, it's like what we do. And it kind of struck me that for everyone else who was in the room, what going to church means is like the amount of work they do is unlocking a door. And most of them have someone to do this. Like they have set up teams and this is their job. Right? And if they have an alarm system, they hit four buttons and send. We're ready for church. Oh, they probably have light switches too. We don't have light switches. <laughs> That's a thing. That's a thing here. So they work harder than us in that area. <laughs> but I was just like, it is an incredible amount of work. But you, I want to. Uh, this is, this is why. If your life has been changed at the Grove, can you just raise your hand real quick? Uh, I wrote a pause in here because this is when I always get emotional. If your life has been, you can keep your hand up for a second. Keep your hand up, will you? Because there was a setup team this morning. And if your hand is up, the setup team wants to see it. <sighs> okay, you can put your hand down. <laughs> we set up chairs every single week. We drive trailers down in the rain and, and hook the trailers up in the rain before the sun comes up in the snow, because there are people in this town whose lives haven't been changed yet. And we'll keep setting those dang chairs up until they are. And we set chairs up every single week. It's like this act of faith that happens. And I walk in, I come in late a lot of the time. And I come in and I'm like, wow, that's a lot of chairs, guys. And I'm like, man, we must have some really spiritual guys on the setup team this week because they have more faith than I do. What happens, so you know too, you need to come back next week because what happens is we have these peak weeks and then everyone's like, well, I was there last week. I did church like four times last weekend. I really like to, really like to, so come back next week. But, <laughs> but God continues to honor the faith of the people who are setting chairs up. And so it's kind of like when they say, are you tired of it? It's like we, like we aren't. And we'll keep doing this. And we'll keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this because I have neighbors who don't know Jesus. I have neighbors who are very, very close to knowing Jesus. I have friends who are so close, it's ridiculous. And I'll keep, we will keep doing this and doing this and doing this and doing this until Jesus comes back. And then we'll get to heaven and we'll find out that there isn't like a church in heaven. And so you have to rent space all the time. And we'll be on the leading edge. <laughs> all the churches will be like, what do we do, Grove? And you're like, relax, we got this. And you're like, my, my chair has the F word on it. That's normal. LAUGHTER are you on the, who's on the F word chair this week? Yeah, there we go. There we go. See? It's there. There may be more than one, but it always seems to be right in front of me. And I stand up and we pray and I bow my head. Ah, dang it. Right? And because I read it, I have to, do I have to apologize? Like, is that a sin to say that word during prayer time? And I didn't say it, I just read it. And the tension in our hearts. But living into this extravagant way of life 
has boundless amounts of strength, has energy that is endless, and we won't grow tired of doing the things we're doing because God is using the things we're doing to change people's lives. And not just change like, oh, I'm more spiritual. There are people among you whose eternal destinations have changed, whose lives were on a path to destruction and waste, and whose lives are now on the path to Jesus and wholeness and holiness. And if that takes setting up chairs, if that takes meeting in uh, no air conditioning, and meeting in times when there's no heat, and meeting in times when we can't control the lights, we will continue to do that. Because it's an expression of our love for each other and our love for the people who aren't here yet. We'll keep doing this. So the letter continues in Ephesians, uh, encouraging the church. And it ends like this in Ephesians chapter 4. This can be on two screens. But he's, he kind of says, I want you to be this way, boundless energy, focused on your calling. And then at the end of a letter, because Paul's a, a good pastor, he says, here's how you actually do this. Okay, so like here's how. So in light of all this, here's what I want you to do. While I'm locked up here, a prisoner for the master, he's literally in jail for leading the church, I want you to get out there and walk, or better yet, run on the road God called you to travel. I don't want any of you sitting around on your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off down some path that goes nowhere. And mark that you do this with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts, but steadily, pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love, alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. You were all called to travel on the same road and in the same direction. So stay together, both outwardly and inwardly. You have one master, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father over all, Father of all, who rules over all, who works through all, and is present in all. Everything you think, sorry, everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness. So here's how. We can flip back to the beginning of the scripture. The first is to be active and moving. There is an inertia to, to following Jesus and an inertia to not following Jesus. I can meet people who've been participants in church for years and years and years, and they'll tell you, oh, I had so much energy when I was a kid, or when we were a young couple, and we volunteered and volunteered, and we just got tired, and now we, we just kind of are here. And, it, and I don't mean like, it doesn't mean you have to be doing a role or having, like, I know what team I'm on. But I, I mean people who, like, aren't even praying for the future of their local church, aren't even dreaming of what God could be doing in the future. And there's an inertia to that kind of, you slow down, slow down, slow down. This is actually described in Psalm 1, the very first prayer in the book of Psalms, where you are walking, and then you're standing, and then you're sitting. And he actually says, sitting on your hands. Like you're genuinely just kind of watching church happen. And that's not a sin. But it's missing out on something really, really cool that you could be a part of. And, and the Paul who wrote this letter encourages you to be a part of this. And there's times when you'll look around and see the teams, like there's a coffee team and a setup team and a welcome team and a this team and a that team, and you might be like, I'm not sure I'm good for any of those teams. Well, what we do is make new teams of what you're good at, and then you're the team leader because <laughs> you're the first one. <laughs> we have very high standards for team leaders. You have to be first. <laughs> That's why I'm pastor. I was here first. 
No one else noticed that, but I was like, you all just showed up second. <laughs> so you want to be moving, and then you want to be directionally clear. We move in his ways, we don't move in the world's ways. Uh, there's a, another section in Ephesians where it actually says, and I put this in your bulletin, that the church is not peripheral to the world, the world is peripheral to the church. We don't look for, to the world to see how we ought to act, we show the world how they could be living. We live in a way that is offensively free. What it means to love everyone. What it means to serve even the least and serve even the greatest with no expectations because that's what love is. We're directionally clear because we're centering this culture. We're showing the world what it is to be a people of Jesus. When the church is described as the body of Christ, what it means if people want to know what Jesus is like, they should be able to look at the church, which is why it's important to celebrate. Jesus' first miracle, making water into wine, and not just wine, but the best wine, at a wedding party, and giving it to people that had already been drinking wine for multiple days. Jesus, apparently, if he was at the wedding, he would do that shuffle dance where they tell you what to do. When we were getting married, it was the Macarena. Jesus would have done that Macarena. And in the pictures, people would be asking, who's this drunk guy at your wedding? And you're like, no, 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 that's just Jesus. That's the way he is. He doesn't even drink. What? Yeah. <laughs> I need to meet this Jesus guy. Isn't that the story of salvation? <laughs> the third thing is to be humble which is, again, countercultural. We live in a culture that is uh, by nature narcissistic, that is by nature, uh, I have friends that go on trips. I love, I love social media for my friends that go on trips. I actually have two friends uh, that went, like two separate friends that were on the same beach, like a friend from Canada and a friend from Washington that were on the same beach the same day in Hawaii. And I messaged them, you've got to look for like a really tall, bald guy with lots of kids. And then I messaged him, you've got to look for some people that are looking for a tall, bald guy. <laughs> it's just the coolest thing. I mean, you'll be super friends because you both like me. Uh, <laughs> they didn't end up meeting each other, but that's, is, I just love that, those things. But I, I don't understand when people, like I have people that go to places and they take pictures of themselves in front of the thing. And I'm like, I know what you look like. Take me a picture of the thing because I want to see what the thing looks like, all right? Like, move over. Do a selfie like this because we, we know you, you know, and you're not one of the seven wonders of the world. <laughs> Just like, even with the filters. But we live in a culture that really celebrates self and celebrates the amount of influence you have on social media and stuff. And that humility actually looks to others and tries to raise them tries to increase the standing and the recognition of other people. If you want to live the freedom life that Jesus offers, you stop trying to lift yourself up and spend your life lifting others because that's what Jesus does. The fourth is discipline, to have a steady and a long, sustained effort, a long, slow run, not some kind of like sprints and stops and sprints and stops, if you follow Jesus, and especially if you plan on living a lot longer, you get to follow Jesus for a very, very long time. 
when I was in Bible college, I went to like pastor school, and I had a professor, I had two or three professors actually, who knew so much about the scripture that when kids that were like youth group all-stars would say, well, what about John chapter three? And then they'd read part of it. This literally happened. And the professor says, oh yeah, I know that passage, and quoted the rest of it to him. Well, the rest of us stood here like, write down, don't disagree with the professor, (laughs) Just quotes the rest of the passage, and then he says literally, and here's why your point is a moot point. And and the kid's just like, right, which is really good for him. But (laughs) we all need a little bit of that at Bible college, but there... There is this discipline uh, and this humility that goes together in understanding that this is going to be a long track. And I would watch those professors and be like, I want to know the scripture like that. But knowing the scripture like that takes decades. And so every day, as, as much as possible, I'm in the Bible. I'm learning it. I want to have the discipline where the scriptures guide my life so they can live more freely in Jesus. And I know the Bible significantly better than I did 20 years ago. And I'm excited for 20 years from now when I understand more of it and I can live more of it in a more free way. But that discipline will take you a long, long time. Like You might wonder, why aren't I a better Christian yet? And the the better question is, am I a better Christian than a year ago? Think back 10 years ago, the struggles you had the lack of understanding of the ways of Jesus you had. And then think 10, 20, 30 years from now, the things that God is going to be doing in your life, you'll have great, great stories to tell. Some of you 10 years ago, you don't have any memories of that. But The fifth thing is to be active in love for each other. To be actually like the best witness to the world that the church is the place they want to be is the way that the church loves each other. There's a lot of things that are good about the Grove. People will come because we've got a killer band or the pastor says funny things with an accent. Uh, they'll come because we have cake every 10 years. <laughs> they'll say we come for the popcorn or they'll come because their kids like it. But what makes people feel like they're a part of the family and what I listen for is people saying, yeah, I went to this church and it's weird. They all like love each other. And there's people, there's people at this church that disagree with each other. There's people at this church that think other people are doing things that Christians should not do. And instead, and these are open-handed things. This isn't like sacrificing a goat to a weird god or something. That, you should not be doing that. <laughs> I mean like style things. <laughs> but there are Christians that do things differently than you hear. And instead of trying to find people that are all like us, we approach each other and say, I wonder what it is that God wants to teach me through that person. Like sometimes it's genuinely patience and grace. But God is using you in their life probably in the same way. <laughs> and that love that a church has for each other is the, at the end of the day, it's the only witness. We can put talented people on stage. We can get cake. We can say funny jokes that I read on the internet. That's all easy. Loving each other. There's a reason it's at the end of the list because it's very, very difficult. And the key to that, like number five is being active in love for each other. The key to that is actually number six, having quick forgiveness. Quick forgiveness. That's really, um, like all these things get harder and harder and harder, I think. Quick forgiveness is actually really, really hard. Because sometimes offense is great. 
uh, whether it's on purpose or not. But quick forgiveness, uh, forgiveness as fast as you can handle, frees you and frees them and opens you up for a greater movement of God in your church and in your city. If you're at a church, I figure there's going to be a time, like if you're living life with other people, there's going to be a time eventually when you're hurt or you hurt someone. It might be on purpose. You might have had a really, really bad day. Or it might be accidental. I know that I've hurt people, and I've been hurt by people. And that incident shouldn't be enough to ruin the extravagant things that God is doing. And so we work our hardest to forgive as quick as we possibly can. Which I don't mean to say like a shallow forgiveness either. I mean to say a thing where you're able to pray God's best for someone else, which is insanely difficult. Like I don't want to be like, oh, and you can do it by Jesus. Because sometimes you can do it by struggling a long time. Sometimes you can do it by like, kind of biting your tongue and, and faking it till you make it kind of thing. And sometimes it might take, like quick might be a time of years. But the sooner we're able to get past when we're hurting each other or when we're offending each other, the sooner we're able to get back on the path. The sooner we're able to not just walk, but run. And when we run, we move forward into the freedom that God has for us the dreams that God has for us. Most churches, well, let me say this. Most churches that get planted in this country don't get planted in the Pacific Northwest. I went to, I say this all the time, we, me and the guy who mentored me, John Strutz, went to a church planting conference in Orlando and they shared all sorts of stats and stuff. And it was for denominational leaders because at the time we were helping other churches in our denomination get started. And they said, all these stats are true, except for in Canada and the Pacific Northwest. Planting churches there is not viable. And we were back in the back in our flannel going, what? <laughs> right? John has planted a church in Clackamas. They meet. They're 15 years old. They own a piece of property. They've been meeting in the Clackamas Community College Theater for 15 years. They don't have to set up chairs. They just fold them down. <laughs> but they have different sets randomly on the stage. They'll have a house one week, and then it'll be like Alice in Wonderland, and that's kind of a weird church vibe. <laughs> but they're just, they, they're just like us. We're completely, according to church plant experts, we are completely unviable. Doesn't that make you, like I wish we had that on a shirt. The Grove Church, unviable since, since 2009. <laughs> The Grove Church. Who'd have thought that? <laughs> but we're moving into something that experts say is miraculous. For a church, not just to say, not just a church to still exist 10 years later, but to be thriving 10 years later, to be looking at an even greater future. For a church to be able to say at 10 years, we're just getting started. Like a 10-year-old person just has potential, not accomplishment. A 10-year-old person as big as we are is just trying to, I said this the other night, is just trying to get coordinated. Like you've seen the 10-year-olds that are stars on the basketball team at 10, and they don't have the ability to run back on defense. And they just stand by the hoop and put it in. 
We're kind of like that. More limbs than we know what to do with. We're running down the court like a baby giraffe. And you can just look at our church and be like, this is about to be something awesome. Like this is going to take off. When you look at a group of people like that, God's doing something there. And I'm very, very excited about next week and next year and 10 years from now and say 75 years from now to see what we're just meeting in a room and people that haven't been born yet, people that haven't moved to this town yet, we're setting something up for them to meet Jesus and they have no idea what's coming. They have no idea how much God loves them and what God's about to do in their life when they just moved to a town called Albany because they couldn't afford to live in Corvallis. <laughs> There's good church plants in Corvallis too. But we're just getting started. We celebrate. We say 10 years, this is incredible. The things that God has done in our lives, the things that God has done through this church, I don't want to list them and be like, ooh. I really want to be like, watch what's about to happen. So we're going to sing one last song together. But our prayer and the thing that you're going to say to yourself over and over when you think about our church is that we're just getting started. We're not tired of this. We're not wearing out. We're kind of only into mile one of this marathon, and we are going to kill it. So let's pray. Let's stand. I'm going to pray. I'm going to say at the end, this is a church thing. I'm going to say at the end, all God. Oh, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> Pastor James forgets to do the offering always. But that cake was expensive. <laughs> <sighs> it wasn't that expensive. It just tastes that expensive. <laughs> but. We're going to do offering while we're singing, okay? So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to give uh, while we're doing this, because we didn't do that earlier in the service, because cake break was important. Uh, but So the buckets will be going around, and if you're worshiping, they'll just pass it by you, like your eyes are closed or something. So if you have no money, eyes closed, hands up. <laughs> That's the worst thing to say. So, um, yeah, so we're going to give... As we go, we're going to sing one song, we're going to give, and then we're going to, you can pick up your kids and stuff like that. We're going to pick the chairs up. Um, but I'm going to say at the end of the prayer, uh, pastors like to say, and all God's people say, and then everybody says amen, right? But I'm going to say, and all God's people say, and you're going to say, we're just getting started, all right? So like, let's practice. I'll say one, two, three, one, two, three, we're just getting started, all right? Is that cool? That's how you know the prayer is over. Lord, I thank you for your grace. Lord, I thank you for your blessing. I thank you for the extravagant freedom that we live into. We live disciplined lives. We live lives that are different than how the world tells us to live. We live lives that are uh, centering our, our world, that are showing our world who you are. And every single person here can identify people that they love who don't know you yet. And I want to pray that what we do together will reach those people. As we live lives that are witness of you, through just our grace and our love and our peace in our hearts, through our generosity, our kindness, our forgiveness, our unity here at this church, I pray that you would use what you're doing here to glorify yourself even more. Take what we've started 
and bring it to something that we can't even ask for because it's so great. We can't even imagine it. And we have big imaginations. We have imaginations of, of a very large church, of, of things like land and buildings, of things like influence in our community, of things like uh, our, the people we love being reached and the story growing, of other churches being blessed because we're overflowing in your blessing here. God, I pray this, not for our glory, but for yours. Not for our sake, but for your name's sake. Because we're just getting started. And all God's people say, we're just getting started.